0: The Lord is good. Amen. Amen. I said the Lord is good. Amen. 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 It is a joy to be here with you all. And I'm so grateful to see so many of you all here as we're moving through uh, this world and living in a post-COVID reality as best and as faithfully as we can. Um, It is the first time I've seen this many people here down on the floor. And that is a joy to my heart. It's good to see so many of you. I want to welcome those of you who are here with us for the first time and uh, here in person, and for those of you who are online, I'm so grateful for, for you choosing to come and be a part of what the Lord is doing here. I, I want to just take a second to say thank you to those who have continued to partner with us financially. Through your giving, uh, those of you who've continued to partner with us and enter into the mission of the Lord with your giving and your finances and stewarding your time and your talents. And when we, when we think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, it's one who stewards the resources they've been given. So earlier, Carrie talked a little bit about how uh, when it came to the resources of our talents and our time and our gifts, uh, exercising and utilizing those with our children's ministry and the, man, just the praise report that that is, that our student ministry, uh, excuse me, our children's ministry this morning is able to serve all of the kids that we want to serve and need to serve. But also there's an opportunity for us to enter in with our, with our money uh, that our hearts would, or excuse me, our treasure would follow our hearts this morning. So if you're looking to give, you can do that by taking a snapshot of the QR code in the seat in front of you, or you can go to uh, fellowship.org backslash give. You can do that online, but we thank you for those who continue to partner with us in this way. I'm going to ask you this morning, if you take your copy of God's word and meet me in the book of Mark chapter seven, Mark chapter seven, this morning, we're going to begin a really uh, fun and interesting sermon series uh, where we're going to be looking at the miracles of Jesus. And I'm really excited, uh, one, because this sermon series is going to give us another glimpse and picture of who Jesus is. We've just spent six weeks, really seven weeks looking at the I am statements of Jesus And now we're going to be looking into the work of Jesus. So we've looked at the person of Jesus and some of his work. Now we're going to be looking at the work of Jesus and some of his person as well. And so this morning, we'll open up our time here in Mark 7. Uh, Very parenthetically, let me just say this as well. One of my philosophies when it comes to preaching is that I believe in a team model approach to ministry. And I believe that we're better together. I do not possess every gift, skill, and faculty that Jesus does. I don't. Uh, It makes me woefully limited. Praise be to God. Um, And and what we need is we need people who fill the gaps that we cannot fill. And and, and as a pastor, um, I want to lead more out of my weaknesses than I do my strengths. Part of that means that as a communicator and as a preacher, I won't be able to preach in such a way that's going to reach everybody in this church. And I think the Spirit of God is doing different things in myself as well as the other preachers that we have on our staff. And so throughout the summer, you're going to see several different faces this summer. And part of that is because I believe in team. But also part of that is our family is going to be transitioning from the Memphis area into Atlanta this summer, and there's a whole lot of things that are up in the air. And so I'm really excited for you to hear from several different men on our staff as they lead us through uh, this summer series as we march uh, ahead in this series in Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. When you get there, say, oh, Yeah. If you need a minute, say, hold up, brother. Fantastic. Let's do this. Verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is the word of the Lord. And before considering it, we should pray. Let's pray. Father, would you bless the reading, the hearing, and the doing of your word. By the power of your spirit for the sake of the son. In the name of Of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, I ask. Amen. 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 Whenever you post something on social media and you want someone to know that it is a picture that has not been augmented, you would tag that picture, hashtag no filter. I often see it in reference to picturesque skyscapes. I see it in reference to beatific bounties within nature. I see it in reference to the subtle beauty and the stark beauty of unadorned faces. Hashtag no filter. When it comes to the Gospels, Mark is the gospel that is hashtag no filter. Mark wastes no time. Mark pulls no punches. Mark wants us and the reader to see And to feel all of the blemishes, all of the scars, all of the wrinkles, all of the liver spots. He wants us to be able to see every single aspect of an unadorned, unblemished Christ, disciple, world, and future church. Mark tends to use this word immediately, immediately, immediately. It's the picture of a lion bounding from scene to scene to scene. He rushes the narrative along because he wants you to be swept up in the immediacy and the fervor of the mission of Christ. So when we arrive here in Mark chapter 7, we arrive with these three words and from... There, again, Mark pushing the narrative along, moving the narrative along, speeding the narrative along so that we don't get a sanitized Jesus. Mark wants you to see that Jesus is good, but he's not safe. We see Jesus using unorthodox methods of healing and deliverance. We see Jesus growing weary and frustrated and angry. And here in this passage, we see an unsanitized Jesus. Now, when I grew up, there were two pictures of Jesus I had in my head. One was white Jesus, who had long blonde hair and blue eyes, who dressed in a choir robe and looked like a hippie skipping through fields, picking lilies with his friends. And in my grandmama's house, there was a picture of black Jesus who had long permed hair, good hazel eyes, unblemished skin in a daishiki who looked like he just came back from a parade on black excellence. (laughs) All too often we make Jesus into our own image, adopting a skin color and a culture more compatible with ours than that which we find in the text. And Mark wants us to see that this Jesus, you've not fabricated. This Jesus, you can't fit into neat categories that would corroborate with your own worldview. No, you need to take this unsanitized Jesus as he is, for this is the Lord. There are four observations that I see here in Mark 7 that I think are important and worth us exploring this morning. The first observation is the powerful posture we find the Syrophoenician woman in, which is desperation. First point this morning, we see desperation that leads to Jesus' feet. We are open to this narrative that this woman has a daughter with a demon. And in the ancient Near East, a poor person could not afford health care. There is no widespread Obamacare. There is no Medicaid or Medicare. Basically, if you had a medical issue, it was either you have enough money to go find a healer or a doctor, you resort to some sort of primal, animistic, regional medicine spiritually, or you simply languish in your condition. This woman, having heard of Jesus, having heard of his work in the region, seeks out the only person she knows that can heal her daughter. There's no pill that her daughter could take. There's no magical elixir. She's literally only going to Jesus because she has no other recourse. We get this declarative, this descriptor here that this woman whose little daughter This is a very young girl. This is a very young girl with a demon, and I just can't imagine what a mother would look at her child writhing in pain, possessed, out of her right mind. A mother would be driven to the very ends of herself, trying to remedy her child's ailment. And then in verse 25, here's Mark again doing very Mark-like things in verse 25, but immediately. That's good. It's the narrative rushing along. It's the lion bounding along. It's the urgency of the moment. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now this is good because a verse before we see Jesus enters a house. So Jesus is sitting in a house and Jesus... He didn't want anyone to know. Jesus was going to hide. Jesus was going to rest. And this desperate woman bursts up into this house like the Kool Aid man. <laughs> All right. Can you imagine sitting in the room and having the door burst open? A woman who is unkempt, a woman who's poor, a woman in poverty, throws herself at the feet of Jesus. And oh, by the way, she's a Syrophoenician woman. Meaning she's from the region of Syria and Phoenicia, meaning that she is, and Mark tells you plainly in verse 26, now this woman was a Gentile the text begs us to see the stark contrast between Jesus, his disciples, and this woman, both ethnically Jew and Gentile, but also gender, male and female. When I think about this interaction, the places in the text give us some indication of why this place is important, because it's interesting that Jesus goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He doesn't go directly to Tyre or Sidon. He goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon because this is the same region that Elijah encounters a widow whose son has fallen ill and is dead. And Elijah raises this widow's son. And it's the same region where Elijah encounters a poor woman and he makes her bread stretch to be more than enough. So when you read of Tyre and Sidon, this picture of Elijah comes up, which consequently, in the transfiguration of Jesus, there's three people there. There's Jesus, there's Moses, and Elijah. Jesus is showing us subtly and teaching the Jews that you may not think that I'm the Messiah, but everything that Elijah did points to me. So this woman bursts up into the house. She throws herself at Jesus, and her desperation has led her to the only source of healing that she knows. This woman from Syro-Phoenicia is outside the covenants of promise, outside the people of God. She has no ancestral claims to Jesus or God for that matter. She has no lineage that would tie her to Jesus. She's an outsider. She's a desperate woman wanting her little girl to be well, and that leads her to Jesus' feet. Friends, the feet of Jesus is a powerful place to be, and desperation is a powerful posture to take. Far too often we lean into the false and narcissistic idol of self-reliance, Believing our own energy, our own income, and our own status can be the solution to a problem until you meet something, a problem that your money cannot fix. You meet something that your family cannot fix. You come up against something that not even your own faculties can fix. And when this happens, rather than seeking solution and escape in ourselves, we turn to Jesus because you may not have all of the money and you may not have any power and you may lack the strength to solve elephant-sized problems, but friends, you have knees. A desperate disposition is powerful because at this point, it is weakness that leads and it is weakness that is strength. And it's in weakness that you're now in a position to watch the salvation of the Lord. This is good. For, for those of us who are affluent, our money can insulate us sometimes from the suffering of the world. That's not a bad thing all the time. God has uniquely gifted and blessed many of you with finances, with wealth, and with income. And Jesus never had an issue with money. He had an issue with the love of money over him. And one of the things that wealth can do is that it can distance us from suffering to the point where our hearts no longer engage with those who are not in the same position that we are, right? But the other thing that it does to our souls is when we grow comfortable, we lose our desperation. And when we grow comfortable and we become insulated from our troubles in our world, we lose a sense of urgency when it comes to pressing into the things of the Lord, because being poor and being needy are, is a disposition that is one in which we would do well to return to understanding what that's like, to become poor and needy, understanding our desperation that leads us to the feet of Jesus. Psalm 86.1 says it this way, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. This is a king saying that he is poor and needy. He's not referring to his financial situation. He's referring to his cardiological poverty. He's referring to the fact that he's in a position that his status and his wealth and his network can't solve. In Psalm 70, verse 5, the psalmist goes on to say, But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer, O Lord. Do not delay. Being poor and needy is a state of heart. Psalm 40, verse 17, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay. O my God, the psalmist wants us to see that the Lord is close to those who are poor, in Needy, Jeremiah 22, in reference to the sons of Josiah, he says it this way, to the sons of Josiah, he, Josiah, judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well, and I love this, is not this to know me, declares the Lord. Is not this to know me? Do you not know that I, the Lord, am close to the poor and needy, that I, the Lord, am near to the poor and needy, that I, the Lord, am going to hasten to the poor and needy. And then in Luke 6, Jesus in Luke six twenty takes all of this and he wraps it up in the beatitude when he says, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. To, to put a more contemporary spin on this, let me fast forward to the early 1900s. In the words of the great Corey Tin Boom, you may never know that Jesus is all that you need until Jesus is all that you have. That's the point. That's the point. Do you know that Jesus is all that you have? Or has our stuff crowded out Jesus? has our stuff filled our hearts and Jesus is sitting on the curb. This woman knows she's got nothing else in the world. She's got no hope in the world except for Jesus. She comes to the only one who can mend what's broken despite her ethnic background, despite her gender. But this text also reveals another important truth for us to see this morning, secondly this morning, We see a testing of faith that produces results. I don't know about you, but where I'm from, in my family, there are times when we might look at each other and say, Why you got an attitude? Some of my other friends might say, You need an attitude adjustment. Others might say, You woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. And others might say, You are acting like Betty White, you need a Snickers. Um, Jesus seems to have an attitude. He seems to get smart with her here. He hears, Jesus, my daughter has a disciple, and his first words are, let the children be fed first. What? When we are used to seeing Jesus as the one who takes compassion on people, who receives the lowly, who receives the broken, when we read Jesus seemingly dismissing this woman, it's a bit jarring. He gives a non-committal answer to her request, and at best, or worse rather, a downright objection. What are we to make of this thematically? So, So a lot of Pastors, theologians are systematic theologians. They take items and issues and topics, and they collate all of the scriptures referring to that topic, and they put them in these very neat categories. I'm not a systematic theologian. I'm a biblical theologian. Biblical theology looks to find the themes, the motifs that connect Genesis to Revelation that tells the story of God throughout all of history. And so biblical theologians will recognize certain patterns and themes and motifs within the narrative. Now, let me just ask you, we're having a conversation about bread. I wonder if you've recently heard a sermon connecting Jesus with bread. in said sermon, you can go back about six weeks to go listen to it on the, on the podcast. You would see that Jesus is connecting himself with manna. Exodus in manna 16, Exodus, God makes manna come up. And this provision, or excuse me, this bread rather, refers to God's provision, his power, and his presence. So anytime you see bread, your ears should perk up because you should be thinking provision, power, presence of God. Elijah spreading the flour to make bread is the provision of God, the presence of God, the power of God. Jesus saying, I am the bread of life as he multiplies a couple funky fish and some loaves of bread, he is the provision of God, the presence of God, the power of God. And then when he synonymizes himself with the bread that comes down from heaven, i.e. manna, Jesus himself is saying, I am God's provision, I am God's presence, I am God's power, bread. Jesus's ministry Is primarily to the Jews. And yet God's narrative from Genesis has always included Gentiles. But a people who have such an ethnic superiority have chosen to read the Bible through their own cultural lens rather than with the eyes of God who from the very beginning has always included Gentiles into his plan of salvation for the world. And this woman, this woman has better theology than the Jews that are listening. Jesus says, let the children come to me. Let the Jews come to me first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. It's not right for it to take me, to give it to Gentiles first. And Jesus doesn't even use the word for Gentiles. He uses a pejorative term for Gentiles, dogs. Jesus seems to be outright combative here. Dog here is the Greek word kynarion, which is the sense of a domesticated dog. It's a little bitty puppy. In a parabolic sense, Jesus is saying, my primary focus is the Jews, and if some Gentiles get included in the process, then that's fine. So be it. But, but when I see Jesus here, I can't but help but to contrast Jesus here with Paul in Romans 1.16, when Paul says that this gospel, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of salvation unto whom? Jews, then Gentiles. Paul understands that the gospel is for Jews, ethnic Jews, non-ethnic Jews. But the real Jew, according to Galatians 3, is one who's been born again by faith. Uh, But Jesus seems to be exclusionary here. What is happening? We need only look at her answer. But she answers, verse 28, yes, Lord. I like this. She's setting us up. But I don't want to be too anachronistic. In this moment, she's answering Jesus, but she's answering him out of the abundance of her heart. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Mm. Even us non-Jews who are outside the covenants of promise, outside the people of God, those whom you did not come to first should reap the residual benefits of your ministry. She's saying, Jesus, I understand, and yet I know that you even came for me. And even if nobody told me that, I believe that you came for me. There's something amazing that happens here when this woman chooses to believe something that flesh and blood could never have revealed this to her. Jews themselves didn't believe this. This is the work of the Spirit of God inside of this woman's heart. She's saying, in other words, even me, a house puppy, should receive but a small measure of your grace and mercy. Even I should receive your provision, your power, and your presence. I like this. Because this woman's answer shows her faith. She's not put off by Jesus' answer. She leans in even more. Her answer indicates that she knows Jesus's ministry is for the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. A very obvious shift that we'll see here in this narrative and also in the other gospels here in a couple of chapters. And yet she chooses to believe that even so, Jesus, I know you can heal my daughter. I've never met you. I don't even know what you look like. I've just heard about you. I ain't had no idea where you were. I've been looking for days and I I, I don't know for sure what exactly you're here for, but I know you can heal my daughter. Jesus seems to be testing the metal of her faith for our benefit. He wants to see if she's coming because she wants the true bread or if she just wants a nibble of bread for breakfast. Does she want the gift or the gift giver? Does she want the hand or the heart? Does she want to know Jesus or just be a recipient of his blessing? All questions that we must ask and yet in the midst of all of this, she perseveres. It's a testing of faith. I wonder if you've ever had your faith tested. Or maybe you're one of these people who's just lived a really charmed life of no suffering and you've never been misunderstood. You've never come up against insurmountable odds. Maybe you've lived a life of just comfort, but that ain't my story. I wonder if your faith's ever been tested. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where you've had to persevere in faith. And I wonder if maybe you're in a place where you're about ready to give up. You're about ready to quit, throw in the towel. Jesus, do you see this world? Ain't no way you came back to die for all these people. How can a good God create and allow so much suffering in the world? You're watching what's happening in our culture as we're devouring people for a number of different issues. And these are the same people who say that they're Christians. Maybe you're here, maybe you're online and you're saying to yourself, if that's what it means to follow Jesus, I don't want a part of this. To which I would reply, I pray my heart is, uh, one, you are welcome in your doubts and your skepticism. That's a good place to be. But don't stay there. I pray you would take the example of this woman and that you would move to the place where you would persevere despite the suffering, despite the struggle. Because somebody here needs to hear this. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't stop praying for that wayward child. Don't stop praying for your circumstances to change. Don't give up, don't quit, because your faith is his primary objective that he's building in the midst of your hardship. Stop sulking and start building. Jesus has not forgotten about you. Your hardship, and even when Jesus seems dismissive, It's an opportunity for your suffering, but really your faith to produce purposeful results because that is exactly what happens here with this woman. It is, third, persistence that pays. Now, watch what happens here. She responds to Jesus, and then Jesus says to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Now, here's, here's um, he, like, this blows my mind. I want you to watch the power of Jesus. Does Jesus touch this little girl? No. Does he spit into the ground and make a paste and put mud on her eyes? No. Does he lay hands on this girl? Jesus ain't even in the same region. He ain't even in the same zip code. He ain't nowhere near this little girl. And yet, what is it that heals this girl? One word. I wonder if you remember the centurion comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I've got a servant that's dying. Can you... Step in and intervene. Jesus says, where is it that you live? And the centurion says, no, you don't need to come to my house. I'm a man under authority. When I tell people to go, they go and execute my word. You only need to say one word. And Jesus says, never in all of this region have I seen such faith. Why? She hears the word of Jesus and she believes it. Jesus ain't gotta be close. This is the power of Christ. One word changes and transforms everything. I wish somebody would come with me this morning. She took Jesus at his word. She believed Jesus's word. She trusted Jesus's word. She stood on Jesus's word. Friends, Jesus's word is enough. It's enough yesterday, it's enough today, it's enough for tomorrow. And it's enough for you right now. Don't just hear Jesus's words, do them. Don't just listen, do them don't just fill up on biblical knowledge and theology and doctrine and get to a point where we can wax poetic about superlapsarianism and the doctrines and the fine details of the atonement. No, we need people who are going to go do it. We need to be like this woman, Jesus, all you got to do is speak one word and I'll believe it. That's where my faith is, because my faith is not in what you can do for me. My faith is in you. And that is the point of this entire narrative, friends. What is the object of our faith? Is it in what God can do for us? Or is it in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Your persistence in obeying when you don't feel like it produces results. Fourth and finally, and I'm about to shut my mouth. Fourth and finally, simple faith is sufficient. There's one thing about this woman. She's a woman of simple faith, but this faith is profound. She might not know a whole lot of theology, but she knows that this man can change her circumstance. And she may not know all of the doctrines in the history of Judaism, but she knows that this man is worth following. This is a woman of simple faith. Friends, hear me when I say this again for the fourth time. It is not The amount of faith that you have that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. There are some people here who've been given the gift of faith. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. The gift of faith is someone who can just believe despite everything crumbling around them, they're going to believe. But not everyone's been given that gift. And for some people, faith is a struggle. For some people, faith is a fight. I talk to people my age and younger all the time that faith for them is a struggle. And they're interacting with so many things in their own heart, in their own background, in the world. And they're saying, man, like, I don't believe like I used to. I got about this much faith. And my message to them and to us is your faith may be small, but it's the object of your faith, not the amount You may be on the edge of belief and unbelief, but baby, you ain't fell off yet. You may be on your last ounce of faith, but my mama always said, Jason, a little dab will do you. You may be in your last leg of faith, but praise be to God, you've got one leg. When it comes to our reality as believers, we are not a people of great faith. We are a people in need of faith in a great Savior. I just want to encourage somebody here this morning that you may have doubts and you may have skepticisms, but let me remind you of Thomas who said, I'm not going to believe until I put my hand in his side. And Jesus says to Thomas, blessed are you that believe, but even more blessed are those who have not seen like you and still believe. Here's the point. Your faith may be the size of a mustard seed, but praise be to God, that faith will move mountains. All you need is a little bit in the object of your faith to gain the world. I need to shut my mouth. That's all right. Hallelujah. So, so, so here's, here's, the, here's, here's the call. Here's the call. Here's the call this morning. The call is to hear, believe, and obey the words of Jesus. That's the call. And the call this morning is that your faith might rest in the power of Jesus in his works, sure. But your faith might rest in the person of Christ. A few years ago, I came across the story of a man named Jonathan Cain, Back in the 70s, was trying to make it in Hollywood, being a rock star. And after being a starving artist for amount of time, he got a dog, and he got this dog to comfort him as a companion. And he loved this dog, and this dog got hit by a car one day. So he picks his dog up, and he takes him to the vet. And the vet tells him it's going to be nine hundred dollars to heal his dog. And he's a starving artist in Hollywood. He doesn't have this money, so he calls his dad back home on the East Coast, and he says, "Dad, I need a loan." My dog got hit by a car. It's going to be $900 and I don't have the money. Can you send me a loan? And he says, should I even be out here? Why am I even, why am I even out here? I, I, I don't even know why. Dad, should I just give this up? Should I just give this up? He had lost faith in what he was going to be doing. So he calls his dad and his dad says, son, I'll give you the loan. Don't worry about it. He says, don't give up. Don't quit. Son, don't stop believing. About four years later, He returns to some notes he took after that conversation and he wrote a song that Journey would popularize that every last person in here probably knows at least some of the words of. But when I think about where he was in his time and I think about where this woman is, the temptation will always be to doubt God's care for us and to doubt Jesus's power, provision, and presence for us. But the opportunity is for us to don't stop believing despite what it may look like. Let's pray. At the end of each sermon, we take 30 to 40 seconds to respond to the word of the Lord, to hear what it is that the Spirit of God is saying to us. So let's take 30 to 45 seconds now to hear and to listen from the Lord. Father in heaven, I thank you for this Syrophoenician woman who shows us all what persistence and what real faith looks like. I thank you for the didactic methods of our Lord in pressing into the areas of where we actually believe. Lord, yes, make us a people who are generous and make us a people who are excellent stewards of our resources. But Lord, make us first and foremost a people of faith. Make us a people with crazy faith and a people that would choose to trust and believe even when it seems crazy to do so. And Lord, my prayer is that you would lead us to a place of desperation, a place where only you could work and act in a way that would rescue us not to change our circumstances only, but to increase our trust and our faith in you. So would you come and do this in the power of the spirit we ask, amen.